Do sit down. Let me ask you to reach for a Bible, turn to page 453, if you would. Page 453, you'll find Psalm 15. We're going to be working our way through Psalms 15 to 24 over the next nine weeks or so, Psalm 15 this morning. Um, Just in case you're not staying for the lunch, let me say now publicly um, uh, a huge thank you to all of our graduating students for all of your service uh, among us. We've loved having you with us. And uh, you may have spotted behind us, if you are eagle-eyed and know which year people are in, almost all the band, not quite, are graduating students. Uh, Ali, who is praying, a graduating student. They're going to leave a huge void when they go. And the wonderful thing about that is that it provides lots of opportunities of service for us so that we can all step up and fill those gaps. So if you are a musician or anything else, come and let us know because we're going to need you. Right, let's uh, pray, shall we, before we read. Dan, I think I'm feeding back a little bit. You might want to work your magic. Thank you. Let me pray as we go. Our Father, we want to thank you that as we come to your word now, you promise to speak to us through it and to do your work in us. Uh, We want to know you. We want to love your son more. We want to be more like him. And so we pray, please, do that work in us for your glory. Amen. Let me read then Psalm 15 to us. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, And does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Hope you'll keep that open. There's also an outline on the back of the notice sheet that you might want to follow along. So this um, new summer series in the Psalms begins with um, what I guess is the most important question of all, isn't it? Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill. Um, Most people seem to think that the psalm was sung as people arrived at the temple to worship God, but you'll see it's asking more than just who's allowed to enter into God's presence. It's about who can remain there. So sojourn in the first line there, that's the, the idea of a temporary resident, but dwell in the second line is much more permanent. Who gets to, to move into God's house Who gets to live with God forever? And for anyone who knows anything about God, that's going to be their their grand ambition in life. Uh, A few Psalms later, David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And even if we're not in the habit of going to church, I hope we can relate to that a, a little bit. We, we know what it's like, don't we, when we meet someone who is truly impressive. 
uh, in any particular sphere. They often have a, a magnetism about them that attracts us to them. We want to hang out with them, to be seen with them, to learn from them, and maybe to be a bit more like them. And, and again, if we find a place that is incredible, something as trivial as a, as a coffee shop or an art gallery or a holiday destination, we, want, we love visiting again and again and again. So I hope we can understand that if we were to come across a being who is perfect in every way, who is always loving and true and just, and if they lived in a whole new world that was wonderful in ways that we never even dreamed was possible. And if we had the chance to be there with him in that perfect new world forever, then I take it that we would jump at it. Well, this um, little collection of Psalms from 15 to 24, we'll see how carefully it's structured over the next few weeks. But it's all about the, the perfect kingdom that God promises to establish here on earth when he comes as the king of glory to reign on his glorious throne forevermore. It's the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated when he first came to earth. It'll be consummated in perfection when he comes again. A kingdom in which he will not allow any more sickness or tears or pain or death. There will only be joy and peace and love and truth. And God himself will be right at the heart of everything. And the, the big question that frames this little collection of Psalms is who qualifies to live with God forever in his perfect kingdom? So you, we've seen it's the question that starts uh, the collection in verse 1 there. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? And then if we were to flick on to Psalm 24 just briefly, you'll see that it's there at the end of the collection as well. So in verse 3, Psalm 24, just over a few pages, 458. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Again, it's expressed in the language of the temple, God's temporary residence on earth, but it speaks to us much more fully of God's permanent home in his new creation. It's as personal as this. Can you and I be sure that we will be there, and on what basis? We've got two points this morning. The first is really the grand theme of the psalm. The second is the application. And we'll spend uh, two-thirds of our time, I reckon, on point one, just so you know where we're going. First, then, the stability of the blameless. The stability of the blameless. That's the summary of the whole psalm. Um, if we were to head out on the streets, if it weren't raining, and ask the people in uh, St. Andrews this morning, who gets to heaven? My hunch is that most people, if they believe in heaven at all, would say everyone. It's what is said most often when someone passes away, isn't it? That they rest in peace, that they've gone to a better place, that they're up in heaven, they're smiling down on us, playing on the fairways in the sky, whatever it may be. And it, it would be wonderful if that were true, if everybody ended up in heaven. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, I take it that none of his people do either. We would love it if all people could come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. But Jesus is really clear that that won't happen. So he's clear that heaven is real, and he's clear that not everyone will be there. It's not even that all moral 
people will be in heaven, or all religious people will be in heaven, or everyone who goes to church, or everyone who says that they're a Christian will be in heaven. Jesus says there'll be many who say to him on the last day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So it's important that we see who does qualify. And the big stress here is on character. Um, The psalm mentions 10 or 11 qualities, depending on how you count them. I've grouped them together under five bullet points. And first is that the one who is fit for heaven does what is right. We're just going to work through them quickly. So verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Uh, That word blameless is sometimes used of God or his word, and then it speaks of flawless perfection and purity. But when it's used of people like um, Noah or Job or David in the Old Testament, it's not suggesting that they're perfect, but that they are wholehearted, that they're people of integrity. So they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked like the sinner in Psalm 1. The desire of their heart is to walk blamelessly in holiness before the Lord. And it's key that we see the stresses on that they do what is right. They don't just know what is right or talk about what is right. They do it. Um, Jesus stressed the same thing in his preaching. Who's the wise man for Jesus? He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock or who's in his family Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Who's the good soil? Those who, hearing the word, hold it fast, he says, in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So the one who's fit for heaven does what is right. They also speak the truth. Second quality, verse 2 again, he speaks truth in his heart. He doesn't slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Um, Back in Psalm 12, the wicked are those who utter lies to their neighbor, those who speak with flattering lips and a double heart. We might say they're people who are two-faced. But God says in Psalm 101, no one who practices deceit, so no liar, shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. God is the God of truth who cannot lie. Lies are an abomination to him. So of course he's not going to let liars dwell in his presence. So the righteous one speaks truth in his heart. That's not saying they just speak their truth without any kind of filter or any sense of whether or not it's accurate. Uh, Neither do they speak words of peace to their neighbor while harboring thoughts of evil in their heart. They love their neighbor from the heart, and so they speak the truth in love to them. So no slurs uh, against them behind their back, nothing that damages someone else's reputation unfairly, nothing that sows discord between people or stokes the fires of conflict, nothing that tears someone down, no feigned praise, no empty words of flattery. And Proverbs says even a whisper can separate close friends. And so the righteous person doesn't drag up the past mistakes. They're slow to believe a negative report. They choose to to wait to gather all of the evidence before they make a judgment. They want to hear both sides of the story. 
John Calvin said, there's no greater injury that can be inflicted upon someone than to wound their reputation. And so God doesn't want any of that sort of talk in his house. Uh, But only people whose speech is full of grace, seasoned with salt, and who build each other up by speaking the truth in love. Of course we call out wrong, but we're sure of our facts before we do it. Third, the one who's fit for heaven also stands with the righteous. Verse 4, in their eyes a vile person is despised, but they honor those who fear the Lord. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, so he's not, we're not being told here to hate people. It, it's more about, one commentator says, casting your vote. It's about deciding what and whom we admire and esteem, whose company we want to keep. And you see it sometimes in, in kids, don't you? Uh, in friendship groups even. There's uh, sometimes even in relationships. There's someone who is, is pretty vile and arrogant. And uh, most people can see that. But for some reason, maybe the kids, maybe someone in a relationship is, is enthralled by them and desperate to, to have their affirmation, to, to be a part of their cool squad. And uh, with parents, it causes them to despair, although then parents often behave pretty similarly with others. But the blameless one sees evil for what it is. So here's the point. The, the blameless one doesn't celebrate behaviors or attitudes or people who are offensive to God just because the world approves of them. They're unafraid to call out to despise everything that God hates and to love all that he loves. And so they honor those who fear the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So where am I going to cast my vote? Who do I want to be associated with? Whose approval matters most to me? Fourth, the one who's fit for heaven keeps their word. Verse 4 ends, he swears to his own hurt and does not change, or maybe better, this is the way I learnt it as I, when I was first a Christian. This is one of my first memory verses. They, they keep their word even when it hurts. They keep their word even when it hurts. Uh, that would include promises you might make to God, include promises you might make to other people as well. And simply, to, to put it as simply as I can, part of walking blamelessly, I guess the reason someone encouraged me to learn that verse early on as a Christian was that if I accept an invitation to something, or if I say that I'm going to be somewhere at a certain time, or if I make a commitment to do something, I won't need to be chased, and I I won't back out if I get a better offer, or if I decide that I can't be bothered or it's a bit inconvenient. Even if it's costly, my word is my bond, so I'll keep it. Uh, Blake, I know, used to be a commodities, I say he's a bloke, he sits in the House of Lords. He used to be a commodities trader in London. I met a group of his uh, clients and competitors once, and it was really striking what they said of him. They said, he's the only person in the city whose handshake is as good as a legally binding contract. If he makes a, if he shakes hands on something, he sticks to it even if it ends up costing him more than he realized. And I thought that was a very powerful thing to come from some competitors and clients. People trusted what he said because he stuck to his word, even when it hurt. I'd love to, um, to hear what you think about this afterwards. I, I suspect that we've lost some of the, the priority of this 
even in our churches. And I, we all know that emergencies come up and plans sometimes have to change at the last minute and sometimes we overcommit and something needs to, to change. But that, that's not a, a license, is it, to have every reply to every social invitation with a maybe or to say yes and then not turn up or to take on a role and then to walk away from it because something better uh, comes along. A commitment will still be a commitment. And our integrity is only ever tested when keeping our word is going to hurt. And so we're told in the New Testament, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And keep your word, even when it hurts. Finally here, the one who walks blamelessly also behaves with integrity, as I've put it. It's to do with money. Verse 5, he does not put out his money at interest and he does not take a bribe against the innocent. Um, So there's a right way to use money and a wrong way to gain it. Uh, The righteous are kind and transparent and honorable when it comes to money. Um, So there were were rules among God's people about how you treat the poor especially. Um, It was pretty common for the rich to behave like the worst kind of loan sharks in in the day, to wait until a, a neighbor was at their most vulnerable financially, then to loan the money and to charge like 50% interest or something on it. And God says, that's not happening in my family. That's what it means by no usury. It's not a ban on having a banking system, but it is a ban on exploiting the vulnerable. Or again, there's another activity that strikes at the heart of society, and that would be bribery and corruption in the legal system. Justice matters. God is a God of justice. So you shouldn't be able to buy off a judge or to bribe a witness to lie for you in court. And so again, the righteous will behave with complete integrity. So the question we're asking is, what kind of person will the perfect God allow to live in his perfect kingdom forever? And the answer is the one who walks blamelessly. And to that one, he gives a wonderful promise. It's the last line of the psalm. Whoever does these things shall never be moved. They shall never be moved. You can see it's a promise about stability Uh, In Psalm 46, it's the city of God itself that shall never be moved. Here it's applied to the citizen of that city, the one who does what is right. They shall never be shaken. For all eternity, they will be as secure and as stable as heaven itself. It made me want to reflect on what I view as strength, uh, where I look for stability and for security in life. And I guess often we look to our abilities, don't we? Uh, Sometimes to our charm, sometimes to our social standing or to our wealth. Here, security is a gift that comes from the Lord. And God promises that whenever he finds someone who walks blamelessly and does what is right, he will ensure that for all eternity... They enjoy a depth of stability and security of which even the mountains can only dream. They shall never be moved. Well, that is the grand theme of the the psalm, the stability of the blameless. And in our remaining time, I'm going to suggest three lessons that God has for us from it. Lessons for the church. And first, we need to admit our need. 
It occurred to me that Psalm 15 is a bit like an advert you'd find, I don't know, on Gumtree, wherever you find it, for someone who's looking for a new housemate. Uh, flat owner seeks responsible 20-something professional to share a newly refurbished flat in Edinburgh. How about God seeks permanent resident of heaven? Successful applicant must walk blamelessly and do what is right, speaking the truth in love and treating everyone with integrity, and eternal stability is offered in return. So what do we think? Are you, are you what God is looking for? What do you think God makes of your life? Could you glance up one psalm, please, to Psalm 14 and look at verse 2. Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It's very deliberate that Psalm 15 comes after Psalm 14. I realize that not may, be, may not be a major revelation this morning or insight from me, but it's very important that this one comes after the one just before it. If you respond to the reading of Psalm 15, a bit like the kind of the, the donkey in Shrek, jumping up and down and saying, pick me, pick me, uh, I qualify, I'm perfect for the job, then we have missed the point. We're meant to respond more like Peter in Luke 5. Do you remember when he got a glimpse of the majesty of Christ? Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It's not saying that we're all as bad as we could be, It's not saying necessarily even that we're all as bad as each other, but left to ourselves, it is saying that none of us are fit for heaven. But square one, step one on the road to heaven is going to be to admit our need. We don't deserve to be there. This is is the great conundrum of religion. How is it possible for the perfect God to dwell together in his perfect kingdom with imperfect people like us? How can a perfect God live with you and me? And Psalm 15 points us forward to the answer. It teaches us, second, to praise our Lord. Because the the Lord Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who can look Psalm 15 in the eye and without even a hint of self-deception say, I meet that standard. I am worthy. We know that he was tempted in every way just as we are but he was without sin. Uh, His opponents hunted high and low for some sort of accusation that they could level against him, but he was the lamb without spot or blemish. He was perfectly innocent in every way. He always walked blamelessly and did what is right. Again, there was no partiality in him. He didn't fawn over the rich and despise the poor like so many. He spoke words of truth to power, and words of hope to the outcast. One of the people who knew him best said of him, he committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. He was truly, he was the righteous one of which Psalm 15 is speaking. He didn't just talk the talk, but he walked blamelessly, consistently every day of his life. And in his righteous perfection, there is hope for us. The reason he came was to solve the conundrum, to open up 
the way for an imperfect people like me uh, and you to be made ready to dwell with our perfect God. Maybe you've been struggling to do a job at some point that's beyond your ability, as trivial as opening a jar or lifting something heavy, and then someone draws alongside and says, here, let me, let me do it for you. Well, Jesus is the righteous one. And he first lived the perfect life that, that we failed to live. And then he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to, to pay the price that our failure rightly deserves. The Apostle Peter said, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So by ourselves, we could never be fit for heaven. But what we can't do, he stepped in to do for us. He alone is worthy to dwell in heaven forever. But if we cling to him, if we ride on his coattails, if we trust in his saving death, then we too can be made worthy. And so we praise our Lord. I know those are familiar words. I, I hope they're not empty or, or cold to us this morning. I said that earlier, for, for anyone who knows anything of the greatness, the majesty, the worth, the goodness, the love of God, for anyone who comprehends anything of the glory, the peace, the beauty, and the everlasting joy of his kingdom, there could be no greater ambition than to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in Christ, the doors are flung wide open to us. And the Father beckons us. Come and share in the joy of your master forever. So I hope we'll want to engage with this, not just intellectually, but in our hearts, to stop and pray, to be giving thanks that he's done it so that we can follow and third, then, to make every effort to walk like him. Um, I love Alec Matias' writings on the psalm. This is what he says on Psalm 15. We are in the kingdom of God, not by nature, but by grace, not by our initiative, but by his invitation, accepted not by merit, but in the beloved. So what should our lives look like now that we are on the inside? And the answer is the life of Psalm 15. Uh, the answer is both searching and attractive. As those who've been clothed by grace in the, the perfect righteousness of Christ, we'll want to live righteous lives. We'll want to put our footsteps in his own. We'll want to walk blamelessly and to do what is right. And it is attractive, isn't it? Think of the, the people you live with um, or people you have lived with in the past. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want them to be people whose speech is pure, controlled, true and edifying? And in the way they relate to others, wouldn't you want them to love their neighbor as they love themselves? Wouldn't you want them to be wholesome and selfless and kind? When you come to church, isn't that the kind of person you'd like to sit next to? Wouldn't you want them to be people that you can trust? People who always keep their word. And when you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, isn't that the kind of person that you would like to be as well? Well, why not pray specifically this week? God's the only one by the Spirit who can grow these qualities in us.
So why not pray specifically for the Spirit's work in our hearts this week? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we esteemed and valued these qualities rather than the things that our world values and esteems? Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Lord worked to grow this fruit in our life? We can make that a a subject of prayer this week, knowing that God will answer. But it will take effort. Um, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you've received. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And my confession is, maybe yours, I don't think we do that all of the time. I think far too often we we know that we're okay if we've trusted in Jesus and we're happy with that. And we're being reminded this morning that God wants us to recommit and to seek to walk in this way. Not trusting in our ability to do it perfectly, but trusting in him uh, to help us and to cover our sins. Let's though end with the, the promise of stability. Those who live like this shall never be moved. That is, those who trust in the Lord Jesus, who hide themselves in him, shall never be moved. They're like the wise person who built their house on a rock. The rains came and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house. But it did not fall. And anyone who is in Christ, who trusts in him, can say, um, words from Psalm 23 we'll see in a few weeks, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our confidence if we're trusting in Christ. That's our hope. And knowing that that's our hope, this is the kind of people we should be. Let's pray together. Our great Father, we want to praise you again for the Lord Jesus, the one who walked blamelessly and only ever did what is right and only ever spoke the truth in his heart. We want to thank you that he showed no partiality. Thank you that he was perfect in every way, in obedience to you, that he offered himself on the cross to open the way for imperfect people like us to be brought into your family and to dwell with you in your perfect kingdom forevermore. We praise you for the king of glory and the kingdom that awaits. We thank you that our place there is not dependent on us and our ability to be perfect people or to live perfect Christian lives, but on him. And we pray that you would help us as those who have been made righteous in Christ, to make every effort to live righteous lives to the glory of his name. Amen.